Hey, Chris Manning from Fear the Sword here, and before you listen to this episode of Thick Jet Frames from Trevor Magnotti, just wanted to encourage you to go to Fear the Sword right now, check out all of our great content, check out all of the great stuff we have on John Beeline, on the draft, on free see that's coming up. There's a whole bunch of great Cavs stuff that you can go check out right now at Fear the Sword, support our work, support us covering the Cavs because you, a Cavs fan, are super into every little detail going on with this team. We're going to have that covered. And again, so check out the bottom podcast in the same feed as well. But thanks for listening. Thanks for subscribing. Thanks for your support. Um, and here's this episode of Thick Jacked Frames. Hey, this is Anthony Benning. You're listening to Fear the Sword Podcast. is the Thick Jack Frames podcast, Fear the Swords NBA Draft podcast. The NBA Draft is set to start about seven weeks from now, so we are in the thick of draft season. NBA Draft Combine comes up this next week. Um, We know who's going to be in the pool. The early entry lists are out, and we know from the Portsmouth Invitational who the main seniors that are going to be getting combine combine invites are so we pretty much know who is on the table for nba teams to draft in 2019 we'll see over the next couple of weeks how that changes with guys trickling out back to school but for today we're going to kind of readjust from our prospect of the week talk and we are going to do another mailbag uh, solicited questions Yesterday, um, I've been sick for most of the week, so I haven't really been able to really dive in on anybody the way that I would quite like. So we're just going to kind of hit surface level on quite a few different prospects today. Um, Thank you to everyone who submitted questions. Um, I solicited questions for NBA draft prospects, the Cavs draft needs, and as kind of a joke, World War I uh, (laughs) geopolitical ramifications. And some of you guys came and ran with that so we're going to dive into some uh world war one history here as well as it relates to the nba draft which is a sentence i bet you never thought you'd hear on an nba draft podcast um so let's go ahead and dive right in um start with our first world war one related question that comes from brandon at underscore collard underscore which draft prospect reminds you most of archduke franz ferdinand um so this is a good question i was able to come up with with a good answer we've got a guy who at the beginning was very important but has kind of lessened in importance throughout the uh throughout the process um somebody who has bloodlines to the NBA already and somebody who has bloodlines throughout um, throughout college basketball, somebody who was horrifically injured and maimed early in the process. Um, so that's all sounding like we got Jonte Porter um, as, as Archduke Ferdinand uh, was probably a top guy at the beginning of the year and now might go in the second round thanks to his injuries that he suffered. Um also has you know his his brother Michael Porter Jr. who has his own complications. Um, so this is a, a pretty good one to one comparison for this draft class. Is Jonte Porter is Archduke Ferdinand. Hopefully he's able to uh, remain a little bit more relevant than 
uh, Franz Ferdinand was throughout the world or throughout World War One history, but uh, we'll see kind of how that goes from there. Next question comes from Daniel at five thousand brr on Twitter. Um, thoughts on Chris Silva? Um, so Silva is in the class. He's a senior from South Carolina. He was on the South Carolina Final Four team um, and has kind of been their main driver over the last couple of years. I saw him at Portsmouth. Uh, wasn't particularly wowed by anything that he did. Um, he he's a player who kind of has a reliance on drawing free throws, getting into the lane and finishing and drawing contact. And I just don't know that that's going to be transferable for him at the NBA level. Um, He's an okay defender, but doesn't really do anything too special on that end. Um, Definitely a guy I think would be worth a summer league invite and potentially work on the like the Canton charge um, to be kind of like a long term play, especially if they can get him to shoot. Um, But not particularly impressed with him when I saw him at Portsmouth a couple weeks ago. Um, we'll use that to segue into our next question, which comes from Ben Pfeiffer, friend of the program, at Ben underscore Pfeiffer. Thoughts on Daquan Jeffries, um, another guy that I saw at Portsmouth. Um, he was definitely kind of the big winner narrative-wise from Portsmouth because here, here you have this super athletic guy who throws down a couple vicious dunks in the Invitational Tournament, has some really good offensive showings and variety of different skills there obviously a pretty good shot blocker with his athleticism as well and he's a guy who has kind of matriculated onto a lot of boards got a combine invite so really exciting time for him to potentially have made himself a NBA player out of out of this post-draft process or out of this pre-draft process but um I have him on my board right now. Um, I am probably going to have him in like the late 40s, early 50s range because while he is a really good dunker and he's he's very explosive, I'm not particularly thrilled with his touch around the rim. Um, and I think that that's a little bit worrisome. He really struggles to finish against contact. Um, when he's at the rim and not attacking downhill on a straight line. Um, So I really wonder how effectively he's going to translate. He kind of reminds me of like a Derek Jones Jr. type um, for the Miami Heat where this guy that's a really explosive dunker but has never really gotten over the edge as like an elite finisher because he doesn't have the touch and body control to be able to do it in tighter spaces. And I think that's kind of Jeffrey's issue too. so I, I really think that he's a guy that, you know, is definitely worth a draft pick because it's hard not to bet on that athleticism. But I don't know that he's actually going to be a functional NBA player because he doesn't really have that touch that I think would set him apart and put him as like a firm first round prospect. Moving on, we'll get another World War One question out of the way. Evan Scrimshaw at E. Scrimshaw. Was the Russian surrender in 1917 as big a tactical mistake as taking Morant at two over RJ would be for the Cavs this year? Um, I've definitely been on the record as saying I think that that's probably the worst possible pick the Cavs can make in, in the top five uh, would be taking John Morant and especially taking John Morant top two when you've got RJ and Jarrett Culver on the board. Um, I really don't think that Morant is going to offer any re- 
positive return on investment with Colin Sexton on the roster and how those two are going to interact. Um, I would much rather take a wing that fits a little bit more with what the team is going to do and fits a little bit more of what the team's strengths and weaknesses are. Um, so I would say that that would be a big tactical mistake. Uh, you're correct. However, I think that you're choosing the wrong World War One event to ascribe that to. I don't think the Russian surrender was a huge technical mistake. I mean, obviously, they were going through it um, on the national level um, and within their own borders with the Bolshevik Revolution. Um, and I think that that was, you know, a reasonable play for the czar to surrender and, and to um, kind of focus on what was happening domestically. Um, I think if you're going to make this comparison, uh, the Cavs drafting John Morant would be more akin to uh, Eric Ludendorff's spring offensive, the Kaiserslocht, um in 1918. I think that that is more of a tactical mistake because, you know, basically what happened there was the spring offense, the last spring offensive. It's Germany's last chance to really gain territory in in France and really try to end the war and he just threw a bunch of punches kind of threw waves upon waves of men at the French lines gained a lot of territory but lost a lot of men in the process and you know wasn't really prepared for a counteroffensive which was always going to happen after a attack like that so um I would I would say that that is more of the tactical mistake that Morant at number two would be for the Cavs a much more um, a much more problematic um, thing that kind of swings the way that the Cavs are going. Um, I would say that the Knicks botching this draft would be more like the Russian surrender, where um, you know they're kind of already in the rock bottom and they can't really th- make things worse by what they do. Um, uh, whereas I think the Cavs can. The Cavs can lose themselves a rebuild if they end up taking Morant number two, um, if that makes sense. So um, the Kaiser Schlacht would be where I would point you to um, for your required reading um, if you want a parallel between these two events um, in terms of the Cavs taking job. Next, let's get on the board and talk a little bit more about the granular second-round picks. Y'all love these, and I love them too. Um, they're really good questions, and you know, I expect going into these mailbags that every time we're going to talk about, you know, a ton about R.J. Barrett and Zion Williamson, and no, we end up talking about Daquan Jeffries and Charles Matthews. Um, so this question comes to us from Michigan Superfan Robert Flom at Rich Homie Flom on Twitter. He uh, helps run Clips Nation, uh, one of our friends. Uh, over on the SB Nation Network, so definitely got to shout him out there. Um, what are your thoughts on Charles Matthews? Any confidence his shot will eventually come around, and will he be playable even without it? Um, so Matthews is uh, technically a junior, but um, functionally a senior for Michigan this year. I don't have him on my board. I have him probably in like the 80s. Um, in terms of where I would where I would rank him um, without putting a ton of thought to it, um, he is a guy that is a really good defender, um, has has really good um, technique, and has kind of helped make Michigan's defense go the last couple of years with his ability to switch and to be able to contain on the perimeter. Um, but he does not really have a functional shot at all. Um, I think that there is reason to believe that it could come around. I mean, he started the year really hot uh, and was making a lot of different shots off the dribble, and I thought that that was really exciting. Um, But he obviously cooled off later in the year, and that kind of 
coincided with a huge slip down my board. Um, so I think that Matthews, you know, he has a shot to have that shot come around, but I don't really know that he's going to get the investment from a team that would draft him and then spend the time to work on the shot with him. So I think that that is a little bit of a red flag there, and I don't know that he's playable without it. I mean, there's not really anything he does functionally at an NBA level if he's not able to spot up and shoot and couple that with his defense. So um, he's not a guy I would draft at this point, um, and that's kind of that's kind of why I I think that if he does get drafted, um, there is a shot that he could end up making it because of the investment that he would get from his team, but I really doubt that that's going to be the case for him. More than likely, he's going to be kind of a guy that drifts around the fringes of the league and never really gets that opportunity to overhaul a shot in a meaningful way. As we move on, we're going to get into some uh, rankings now. Uh, a few good ranking questions here on some very specific uh, points. Uh, we're also going to have a couple questions that we can kind of group together. Um, so we'll start off with Gabriel Andrade uh, at Gabriel and Paula, uh, one of the better European scouts that I follow um, and good friend. Uh, from the early international list, name eight guys that you think could be good. Um, so the as a part of the early entry list, we also get international players that put their name in. Um, anybody that is between uh, 19 and 22 basically gets to put their name in the draft from the international class. Um, they'll get some feedback. Most of these guys are going to drop out, but I think that there's definitely eight guys who could have a future in the or with the NBA if they do end up getting drafted. Uh, or do end up staying in the draft at any point. Um, the obvious ones are going to be Goga Batadze, Seker Dumboya, and Davidis Servitis. I think that those are the three guys who are definitely getting t- uh, getting drafted from the international class this year. Batadze, center from Georgia, who played at Budichnost. Dumboya, a small forward, power forward from Limoges in France. And then Servitas, who played with Leituvas Raitis in Lithuania. We talked about him a few weeks ago. Um, I think that all three of those guys are probable rotation guys in the league. Um, I think that Dumboya probably has the furthest to go to be able to hit that spot, but he also has a little bit higher ceiling because of how raw he is. Um, I think that Batadze is probably the top guy in the class. I have him at number 17 on my board currently. Um, Dumboy is kind of right behind him at like 19 and then Servetus at uh, about 27. Um, I'll also throw Yovel Zeusman from Maccabi Tel Aviv in as my fourth guy. I think he is a first round level prospect. I have him at like number 26 on my board and he is a guy that I think translates really well to the NBA as a defender and finisher in transition. I think there's definitely a spot for him if he can learn to shoot because he has an NBA body. Um, and is a very technically sound defender. Um, so I think that he he's probably a guy that's going to be like a draft and stash second round guy. Um, but I think that he has the talent to be a, an NBA player. And then my guys on the fringes, um, these are not guys that I think could be good or could be drafted this year, really, um, but eventually could end up on the board. Um, William McDowell White from Bonnock. He's an Australian shooting guard. Um, I have him at number 60. And I think that he at 21 is, has a good chance to get drafted. He's a pretty good athletic playmaker. Um, they can play a little bit of combo guard really quick. One of the fastest players in the class. Um, and I think that he has a shot because of that. Um, Zoran Ponovich for 
uh, FMP Bayograd. I have him kind of as a 2020 guy because he really hasn't gotten a chance to play that much in the last two years. So I think that he's probably a guy that's kind of a long-term deal, but he's a young 6'6 pick-and-roll scorer that I think is, has a really good skill set. Vrenz Blindberg, um, who played in the Belgian second division, he's kind of the cult favorite for the European uh, guys. I think that he is another guy that I think waits until 2020 because he's super young and super raw, um, probably waits to get a little bit better chance, whether that's in the Belgian first division or elsewhere throughout Europe. Um, but he has a really good NBA body, um, has some interesting on-ball skills, and I think could end up being maybe a, maybe even a first-rounder next year if he is able to kind of show a little bit more what he can do. And then what's round off the list with a guy who I'm very partial to, um, have loved for a long time, Dino Radoncic from Montenegro, um, plays for Real Madrid, um, get, has gotten some good chances to be able to play on Madrid's A-team throughout the last couple of years. I always like what I see from him. Um, 6'9 forward that has really good defensive technique and is a really good finisher off ball as a cutter. Really needs to work on his shot, but I think could be worth a drafting stash this year or next year. Um, so I would have those eight as my guys. Batadze, Demboya, Zeusman, Servetus, McDowell-White, Ponovic, Blindberg, and Dino Radoncic are my eight guys that I think could be good on the NBA level one day. Um, feeding off of that, um, we got another solicitation for some thoughts on another Euro guy. This one comes from True Shooting Percentage Elliot at Cosmos on Twitter. Um, Brutus, yay or nay? So, Warinus Brutus, he's a 21-year-old forward who plays for Zalgaris, um, is kind of a guy that comes off the bench for them. Um, I'm not really thinking that he is an NBA guy. Uh, really, it's just he is a little bit too slow and a little bit too inflexible underneath the basket. Um, he's not a guy who's really can like go out on the perimeter really on either end he's best as like a like a Reggie Evans type power rebounder um, who parks underneath the basket in the dunker spot sets the occasional screen out on the perimeter but mostly you want hiding in the restricted area Um, and those guys just don't really survive in the NBA nowadays Um, I would I would liken him he's kind of like Ante Zizic with a little bit less flexibility and I really don't think that's a good player. Um, I think he's probably going to be a EuroLeague starter for a long time once he kind of gets his opportunities with Zalgaris. Um, I think that he's probably going to be one of those guys who kind of spends like a decade there, is on the Lithuanian national team, gives the Americans a little bit of an issue in the Olympics, but never really threatens uh, to come over to the NBA. We'll shift to our next ranking uh, talk, which is going to be from CT underscore Fazio at Ctoma24. How would you rank the point guards in this draft? Um, This is an interesting question because it really made me go back and realize that I don't have that many point guards ranked in this class. It's a very weak point guard class, um, probably the weakest one we've seen in a few years. And when you couple that with... Um, next year's class, which is very point guard dominant. Um, You've got probably at least like seven or eight lead ball handlers that I would take over any of the guys in this class. Um, Obviously, we'll see how they do in college, but kind of right now looking at it, um, there is a real 
that's a real part that feeds into my hesitance of taking John Morant is if you really want to weed ball hand work, don't take Morant who overlaps a lot with Sexton. Take one of the guys that's going to come next year that's going to be a little bit better and have a higher ceiling than what I think Morant is going to be able to do. But um, in terms of our actual rankings, um, Y'all should know by now, Kobe White's my number one guy. I have him number four on my board. Um, he's my number one point guard. Um, this is just ranking the guys that I have as like pure point guards. So there's no uh, no Nikhil Alexander-Walker on this list. Um, if I was doing weed ball handlers, I would throw him, um, R.J. Barrett, in as well um, because I think that's kind of the role that they'll play. But in terms of the f- pure point guards, I have White number one, Morant two, Garland three. Those are kind of the big ones. Those are the only guys I have in the first round as well. Um, Shimori Pons four. I've kind of dropped him out of the first round into the top of the second, and I have him above Devon Dotson just because Pons, I think, is a little bit better handler and a little bit better distributor. Um, then I have Miles Powell. Wait in the draft uh, from Seton Hall, really good uh, passer and shooter, um, but doesn't really play a wicked defense. Jordan Poole who, from Michigan, who is just woefully inconsistent. And then Chris Clemens, who is Kay Felder, but if Kay Felder could actually shoot. Um, so I think that that's kind of where I sit in terms of the point guards. Um, there's got guys like Carson Edwards from Purdue I don't have ranked because I would much rather take Powell in like the 50s or even potentially have him come in undrafted on a summer league team than spend a first rounder on Carson Edwards when you're realistically getting the same thing with Powell. Um, so I have uh, him completely off my top 60, um, but that's kind of my order. White, Morant, Garland at the top, and then Pons, Dotson, Powell, Poole, Clemens, uh, underneath in the second round. Piggybacking off that, we go to Brian Keys at BG underscore Keys on Twitter. Do you think Kobe or do you see Kobe White becoming an, a lead ball handler distributor in his career or primarily a secondary creator scorer type? Um, that's an interesting question. I think that there is a path to White becoming a lead ball handler. I think that really depends on his shot continuing to develop and also him getting a lot stronger to become like an elite level finisher. Um, I don't really know that he ever gets there, but I think that he's going to be someone who is at least average to good at all three levels of scoring at the rim, pull up mid range, and then from three point. And I think that he's going to be able to drift off ball and be a nice catch and shoot option. So I would put him more in the secondary creator scorer camp. I really don't think that he's ever going to be the type of finisher that lets you be a primary. Um, but I think that his ability to break guys down off the dribble, to be able to uh, kind of turn the corner out of the pick and roll and explode, explode toward the rim and then be able to pull up out of that, I think he's definitely going to be a guy that's going to be able to get shots for himself and be able to create out of parts of the offense. I just really think he can't be the number one guy that's doing that a majority of the time for your offense to be successful. So um, I would... That's why I've talked about, you know, having him and Colin Sexton as like a 1A, 1B, I think would work. Um, Putting him on a team like Minnesota or putting him on a team like Washington would be a good would be a good setup for him. Um, I really think that the only bad fit for him in the top of the draft is probably um, probably New York, where he is not going to really have that otherwise. Um, So I think that having or I think that he's a guy that fits most places in the draft, so that's why I have him as the, the as the number one guy because he 
is going to be kind of that primary or that secondary creator. And I th- I'm pretty confident that he's going to be able to make it there. Whereas Morant, I think, is a weed ball handler or nothing in terms of his potential outcomes in terms of impact. We'll go to our third ranking set. This one comes from Ramanoid at Ramanoid2 on Twitter. How would you rank this year's big man class in terms of perimeter defense ability? So this is a really interesting question that I really had a tough time thinking of because there are a lot of positive traits from the big men in this class in terms of defending on the perimeter, but also nobody is really like a pure shutdown guy like nobody is going to be able to defend like Darren Jackson or Wendell Carter from this class Um, but there's still some talent here so I had an interesting time trying to rank these guys Um, I'm just going to do the first rounders and I'm going to do the full-time bigs that I have so for me that's Zion Williamson, Brandon Clark, Jackson Hayes, Bull Bull, Jonte Porter, Goga Patadze, Nehemiah Skeda, Daniel Gafford, and Nick Claxton of Georgia. Um, And I would probably put Clark as the number one guy. I think that he's probably the best at containing and switching of this group. Um, I would put Hayes number two, even though he's not the best at it right now. I think that his skill set and his lateral agility is really going to lend to him eventually becoming a really, really good perimeter defender. Um, I think that he's a guy that is going to potentially offer um, much more defense in space because of his length and his ability to shift directions. Um, I think once he gets the technique down, he's going to be really solid. So I would have him number two. Claxton is actually my number three guy um, because just that's his prime. That's his primary skill. His primary value as a big at the next level, based on what his skill set is right now, is his ability to defend and contain in space, uh, especially on switches. Um, he's a guy that I think is going to be a potential steal if the rest of his game kind of develops around. But that's kind of his primary thing. Is he is so quick and so agile on the perimeter that he's able to switch on guards comfortably and I think that that's going to be something that makes him potentially value at the valuable at the next level then I have Zion who has really good technique when he's engaged um, and definitely has the athletic traits that are going to let him be able to switch on the perimeter um, but he just doesn't bring it all the time Daniel Gafford, who is kind of like a poor man's uh, haze in that he has kind of all the tools but has never really put it together. He's also a year older, so I'm a little bit less confident that he's going to be able to do that. Batadze would go after that because he knows where he needs to be and can save himself, but he is kind of cinder blocky in the way that he moves his feet. Um, so I don't think that he's going to be quick enough to be able to do it comfortably and consistently, even though he knows where how to put himself in the right spot. Um, I think at best he's kind of like a mark. He's kind of like a poor man's Mark Gasol type, where you know he's never going to be able to like shift back and forth against a quick guard, but he's definitely going to be able to do something on the perimeter and be able to shut some stuff down. And then I get the more raw guys, Kata, Porter, Bull. Um, none of those guys are particularly solid at defending on the perimeter and kind of the physical like sliding. Um, Kata is much more of a rim guy. Um, Porter is more of like a weak side defender. And then Bull is just completely lost on the perimeter. He has no idea what he's doing. Um, so I would put him as like the worst guy of that group. Um, so to recap, again, the rankings there, Clark, Hayes, Claxton, Zion, those are the four guys that I would consider are probably going to be probably going to be good 
at perimeter defense at the next level. Gafford and Batadze, I'm unsure of. I think that they could be, along with Keita. And then Porter and Bowl, I think, are the guys who are going to be weak uh, at that spot um, in, t- in terms of perimeter defense. So that's kind of how I would rank all these guys. A few more questions here. We're going to kind of hit the hit these a little bit quick because um, we're running a little bit, a little bit long. Um, this one comes from playoffs. Andy Tobo at Andy Tobo, um, good friend Andy Tobolowski. Um, do you think Ferdinand Folk was a g- good general? Um, can always leave it to Andy to uh, offer up a good history question when it's solicited. Um, I think that he was okay for World War One standards. Um, my general feeling on World War One generals is that none of them were good because it was going to be impossible for all of them to be good, tech, or for any of them to be good because technology had advanced so quickly and advanced so quickly throughout the war that all these guys who are used to kind of doing like Napoleonic style marches and um in battle tact- tactics where you didn't have tanks, you didn't have trenches, you didn't have machine guns, um, all of those guys were fighting at a significant disadvantage and were kind of having to adapt on the fly. And that's a, a big reason that so many people died in World War I. Um, I don't think Folk is an exception. Um, I don't think that he was worse than anybody else in that regard. He really struggled with it, especially early in the war. Um, but it was just in lack of understanding. I will say that he was pretty solid at the end. Um, once he kind of figured out, he got put in charge of the counteroffensive against the Kaiserschlacht and did a pretty good job of fighting it back and then weeding the counterattack. So I got to give him props there, even if he got thousands of people killed in the Battle of Somme and Ypres. Um, so you know, I, th- I think that uh, I think that he was good for the time, um, but we're grading at a curve there because everybody was bad because they didn't know how to do anything with any of the technology. Back to draft stuff, um, the things that you actually care about. We'll go with and and say sorry at Dylan's fault on Twitter. Does RJ have defensive upside? Um, good question. <laughs> Hard, hard to pick out because his low spots on defense were so bad. I think that he does have a chance to become like a okay defender. Like not every 19-year-old that's bad on defense is bad forever. Um, I mean, if James Harden can lock in certain years and if Kyrie Irving can at least like kind of show up on the defensive end in Boston, like anybody can really do it as long as you're not like Isaiah Thomas. So I definitely think there is a path to RJ becoming good Um or at least passable on the defensive end. I think that that relies on him having a little bit less of a role than he did at Duke, him really developing in terms of his strength and being able to defend up a position I think would help, um, and really being put in a role that makes use of kind of how he can like agilely go around screens as opposed to making him make a lot of decisions off ball. Um, so I think that there's a path there, but he's going to be bad early on. Um, He is a guy that I think on the rookie contract is never going to have any positive defensive value. I think this is kind of like a later on thing that could develop. So really interesting to see kind of what his defense is going to look like early on. But I think he's going to be pretty, pretty atrocious um, early on. He's going to be a guy that's going to have to be accounted for. Um, But I think he does enough on the offensive end that I think you can forgive that to an extent. Um, So not totally giving up on RJ Barrett's defense, but definitely prepared for him to uh, look very bad next year. 
And our last question is going to come from Hiram Boyd at Hiram Boyd on Twitter. If he shows up during the pre-draft process, can Kevin Porter Jr. go top five? Um, I definitely think he can. Um, I think that this is going to be a year where the individual workouts that teams run are going to be very dangerous for certain teams. Um, We saw last year that a lot of bad decisions were made as a result of these workouts. Um, You can certainly argue if you're that type that Colin Sexton um, was a bad decision based on a workout for the Cavs. You can definitely argue that Kevin Knox was a bad decision based on a workout. I will argue to the death that Jerome Robinson was the worst decision made. That was kind of because of a workout and an interview by the Clippers. Um, So I think that Porter Jr., he is the perfect type of guy who is going to come into these kind of climate-controlled workouts and is going to really show out because he is such a good athlete and he does have kind of the hints of like these advanced dribble moves that can get him really good shots. And I think that there's definitely a chance that a team could fall in love with him. I mean, if Chicago goes five and they are kind of, they've lost out on Zion, they've lost out on John Morant, they've lost out on RJ Barrett. I can definitely see them being a team that watched Kevin Porter Jr. in a workout and was like, let's just do it. Let's go with him. He looks like a future star. And then he totally collapses and is terrible for them. Um, I think that's probably going to be what will happen to that team if he is picked in the top five. Um, But I definitely think that he can go there because these individual workouts that, in my opinion, are the least valuable pieces of information that you get in the NBA draft, um, they sway certain front offices to a big degree. And I think that Porter is a guy that's going to be positive in that. And I don't know that he necessarily should be a guy that, um, that you should put a lot of stock in based on how he does in those meetings. But I could definitely see someone making a mistake and taking Porter fifth, sixth, seventh, um, because they liked what he did one on or one on one or in three on three in a very climate controlled setting against some guys that are not NBA caliber players that are in this draft class. So that'll wrap it up for our mailbag. Thanks again to everyone who submitted questions on Twitter. If you ever have a question or a topic that you like us to discuss, obviously send it to me at legal screens and I will do my best to get it on here. Um, even willing to have a little fun, fun and go off topic as we did today with the world war one questions. Thank you to everyone who gave those. That was a lot of fun for me. Uh, where I, you know, kind of amateur world war one historian um i really really enjoyed that um remember you can find the podcast on fear the sword itunes stitcher spotify um anywhere else that posts podcasts it's probably there um keep an eye out for our other podcasts on the fear the sword network as well and rate subscribe leave a review help more people find the podcast so that we can keep doing fun stuff like this um we'll be back next week um to really dive in on a couple prospects we'll do a couple quick breakdowns we'll kind of talk about maybe some skill market stuff, um, kind of shift into that um, direction, trying to figure out who are the best players at what the Cavs need going into the draft. So we'll kind of talk about that, and um, we'll be back next week, hopefully with me feeling a little bit better. So definitely stay tuned for that.